Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled First Teachings, Buddha and His First Female Disciples by Lama Kathy Wesley. In observance of the holy day called Chokor Duchen, the great occasion of the Buddha's first turning of the wheel of Dharma, Lama Kathy will discuss the first teachings of the historical Buddha Shakyamuni, who first showed the path of liberation from suffering 2,500 years ago. She also will highlight the teachings of the Buddha's very first women disciples. Incisive and fresh, these poems ring true today, just as they did 2,500 years ago. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Take Some Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. I'm, I'm super happy to see you all this morning. Oh my gosh, it's great to see so many people here. Um, um, today is a little bit of a special Dharma talk today because it is the um, celebration of the Buddha's first teaching. People often ask me, are there Buddhist holidays? Do they exist? And the answer is, yes, we have holidays. Yes, they exist. And there are four of them throughout the lunar year. Buddhism, like Judaism and Islam, and certain parts of Christianity operate on a lunar calendar. And the phases of the moon determine the days of the week, the months of the year, and so on. And in that year, the month begins on the new moon, I'm sorry, the day after the new moon. The day after the new moon is the first day of that lunar month. The 15th of that lunar month is the full moon. And then the calendar moves to the other end where once again, the new moon occurs at the end of the month. Tibetan calendar making uh, is, uh, is actually considered a science among the astrologers of Tibet. And, uh, and some of the astrologers in Tibet are very picky about their calendars. The rest of us just have to kind of follow along. The four days that are sacred to Buddhists in the Buddhist year are at the beginning of the new year. Uh, it's called Lo Sar in Tibetan. L-O means year and S-A-R means new, the new year. The new year is a lunar new year, which happens for different Tibetans at different months. Sometimes the Tibetan government calendar will be different from the Kaju lineage calendar and vice versa. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they're different. This year they're the same. That's really helpful. So the first 15 days of the new year, they are called the miracle the waxing moon of miracles, because as the moon becomes full, it celebrates the 
16 days that the Buddha performed miracles when he was debating with non-Buddhist scholars in India. All four of our events follow <coughs> events in the life of the Buddha. So this first 15 days, this waxing moon of miracles celebrates his defeating of the non-Buddhist scholars in a debate. It was a winner-take-all debate, and I told the story of that in another Dharma talk. The second of these great holidays in the year is called Sagadawa, um, and that happens, uh, Dawa means moon, and I have forgotten the exact uh, Saka. It could mean the, um, it could mean the, the seat of the Buddha. I'm going to have to go back and remember. But the idea is it was the day he attained enlightenment. It, re it recalls the day he attained enlightenment, which happened to also be on the lunar calendar the day he passed away. So they used Sagadawa to celebrate his birth, his enlightenment, and his passing. The third date of the four is today, or actually it was Friday, but we're celebrating today. And it's called a Chukor uh, Duchen. Duchen means a great occasion. And so Chu means Dharma and Kor means wheel. So this is the day that commemorates when the Buddha turned the wheel of Dharma, which is a fancy way for saying he taught. <laughs> he taught the Dharma on that day. And uh, then the last of these holidays is called Chabab um, Duchen. Pla means like uh, God, and bat means to descend. Uh, Duchen, the great occasion of the Buddha's descent from the realm of the 33 Hindu gods. It is said in legend that he visited his mother, who uh, passed away when he was born. He, she died about seven days after his birth, and he was raised by his father, the king, uh, and his stepmother, Prajnapati, who we will be mentioning here in just a few minutes. And, uh, and so this particular event happened in the life of the Buddha after his enlightenment. He wanted to go repay his mother's kindness in giving birth to him by going to where she had been reborn and giving her a teaching. It just happened she was reborn in the realm of the gods. So she went, he went and visited her there. Uh, they call it, um, some people call it a Buddhist Mother's Day, which I think is kind of cool, right? So uh, today we're commemorating the Buddha's first teaching. And in honor of this, uh, I'm going to uh, begin by having us all recite uh, a prayer of aspiration. Uh, you'll see the prayer in this red book. Uh, and we'll just recite it together. It's on page 40. But because uh, I started a little late today, we won't recite the entire prayer. If you, uh, if you don't have a book near you, we have a couple sitting here. If anybody needs a book, uh, Julaine will help you get one. Now you're gonna laugh because first thing I do is I say turn to page 40, and then I'm gonna tell you to keep turning in a minute, but you can see the picture. <laughs> This way you get to see the picture on page 39 or 40, whatever. Yeah, page 40. So uh, the Buddha's first teaching uh, day, uh, I just want to show you something. Uh, the, um, there's a prayer here in English, the praise of the 12 deeds. 
Uh, we won't be reciting the entire prayer because, I, like I say, I decided to start with an introduction which took up a little time. Uh, and so what it is is that we praise the, the 12 main activities of the Buddha while he was living in, in this world. And uh, so what I'd like for you to do now that you've turned to page 40 is turn to page 44. On page 44, you'll see that there are four, four verses. And you'll see the third of the four, four, fourth verse, beginning with the words, when he, the chief of men, was born. This, uh, this is the first of his deeds. And we're going to recite the prayer from here. This is considered the, uh, the digest version or the abridged version of the prayer of, to, of the 12 deeds, okay? All right. So we'll, uh, we'll think that, uh, that we're in the presence of the Buddha praising his deeds and by praising these deeds, well, you'll see at the end. We're gonna do this in English. When he, the chief of men was born, took seven steps on this great earth and proclaimed, I am supreme among beings in this world. To him, the great wise one of that time, I prostrate. He who first descended from the Tushita God's realm entered his mother's womb in the royal state and was born as the sage in the Lumbini garden. The blessed one, God of the gods, to him I prostrate. In the royal mansion, he who was worshiped by eight nurses, among the Shakya youths, he demonstrated his athletic skill, and in Kapalavastu, he accepted Gopa in marriage. The unequaled body and the three worldly existences, to him I prostrate. He who showed sadness at the four gates of the city, cut off his hair at Namdak Stupa, and practiced asceticism at the bank of Naranjana. To him who is free of obscurations, I prostrate. In Rajgra, the sage subdued a mad elephant. In Vaishali, a monkey offered him honey. And in Magadha, he attained enlightenment. To him who is shining with wisdom, I prostrate. At Varanasi, he turned the wheel of Dharma. At the garden of Jeddah, he exhibited great <coughs> miracles. At Kushinagara, he passed away into Nirvana. To him whose mind is like space, I prostrate. Thus, by the merit of praising the deeds of you, the blessed one, the master of the doctrine, may the activities of all the beings also become equal to your deeds. May we all become very like the body of the such gone Buddha. And may we have retinues, life extent, Buddha field, and excellent signs similar to his. By the power of praying and offering praise to you, in the area where we are residing, may the sickness, poverty, and wars be pacified and may dharma and auspiciousness increase. May there be the auspiciousness of the longevity of the doctrine with Buddhas appearing in the world, the doctrine shining like sunlight 
and the development and prosperity of the doctrine holders, teachers, and disciples. Thanks for uh, joining me with that. Now we can do our usual, uh, our usual uh, Sunday morning program, which begins on page four with the, um, the recitation of the refuge prayer. We will only be reciting page four today. We'll recite it twice in English and then once in Tibetan. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, we take refuge until we reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, we take refuge until we reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And now uh, we'll recite it in Tibetan uh, to receive uh, the blessing of reciting it in the language it was composed in. Or Sanje Chudan Soji Chonahamla Chang Chu Pardu Dani Kyapsuchi Daji Chin Soji Besunaham Ki Drola Penchir Sanje Okay, thanks very much. Uh, now I'll recite a short, a short prayer of my own, and then we'll get started. Thanks, everyone. Uh, it's uh, customary uh, on the Sunday after the um, on the Sunday after the um, Chukor Duchen holiday. It's customary uh, for me to uh, recite. Uh, some of the verses of the of the Dhammapada, which is the very first book collection of the Buddhist teachings. So I'll start with that. Uh, as the author of a modern translation uh, said, um, actually, no, it wasn't the author. It was a, another writer uh, writing the foreword in um, the Thomas Byram version of the Dhammapada. He said, imagine that you are in a, a, a cool grove in India. It's a hot summer afternoon and the, there's a little bit of breeze playing through the trees. And uh, you're sitting there and you're in the presence of a master who's giving you a teaching. And you turn your head toward him and think, I hope I receive some teaching today that will benefit me and everyone. And so he said, and thinking of that, then you should read the book. It's like you're in the presence of the Buddha. And so the book begins with um, eight short lines, uh, and I'll recite them for you. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts, we make the world. If we think 
speak, and act with an impure mind, suffering follows us just as surely the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. Everything we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts, we make the world. If we think, speak, and act with a pure mind, happiness follows us like a shadow that's unshakable. Hate never once dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful, so basic, so human. It's great masters have uh, done cover band versions of those words in the last 2,500 years. And um, you will even see uh, these uh, the, some, some of these uh, online today. In any case, those words of the Buddha are very famous and well-known. And, uh, and as you saw in the prayer we just recited, by thinking of and remembering the Buddha on this particular day, we remind ourselves that we too have Buddha nature. Every person in this room has Buddha nature. They have a mind that has the capacity to know itself and to know itself completely and to accomplish perfect love and perfect wisdom. Everybody has the potential. Everyone has the potential to do that. Uh, and one author said, in a way, reciting this prayer is really beneficial because he said, eventually we will all live the life of the Buddha. We will all be born into circumstances that shape us and we'll take those circumstances with us. We will have some happiness, we will have some suffering and then make the decision that we want to choose happiness. We will forsake unhealthy people and environments sit in solitude on our meditation seat and practice meditation. And hopefully we will accomplish as the Buddha did, awakening and freedom from suffering. I just love that analogy. And so you'll have to forgive me, but I do tend to repeat it at least once a year. Because every single one of us in some way is living the life of the Buddha right now. We've all been through stuff, let's face it. And here we are. We've been through good times, we've been through bad times, and yet here we are. We're still here, we're still walking and talking and able to guide our actions, thoughts, and words. And so we have an incredible fortune in that. So um, I wanted to start just by repeating the story because the, the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, having been born into royalty, he forsook his royal heritage, he left his wife and his young son, the heir to the throne in the, in the care of his father, 
and his stepmother, and he went and practiced for six years on the banks of the Naranjana River, accomplished Buddhahood there, and then when he was asked to teach, because it was said that he sat for 49 days after his enlightenment experience and didn't know what to do. If I teach about this, how can I express what I have experienced? And if I teach about it, will people even understand it? And then finally, he was requested by someone, please, teacher, share what you've learned. And then the auspicious condition of being asked, being met, he gave his teaching. Now, we've heard these stories before, but the stories we don't hear so often are the stories about what did happen to the Buddha's stepmother? What did happen to her? What did happen to the Buddha's wife? What, what happened? What was next? Well, what was next was that after the Buddha became a renowned teacher, his stepmother and his wife said, you know, we would like to become followers of the Buddha, but all of his followers right now are men. What will we do? They're not letting women join. So I'll cut to the chase. They asked him if they could ordain, leave home, shave their heads and become monastic. And he said, no, it's not the right time. And, uh, and so they were very disappointed. Well, they gathered a little steam and then they found there were other women who wanted to ordain and they marched. Yes, they marched all together. They went ahead and shaved their heads except for a little tuft of hair so that it could be cut as was cut in the monastic rites. They shaved all their hair, they put on robes and they walked to the Buddha's, the place where the Buddha was staying. It was, it was many miles. They marched on the Buddha's compound and they stood beneath his balcony and said, ordain us. And he said, once again, he said, no, the time is not right. And, uh, and then he went back and came out a, th a third time and they asked him again, please ordain us. And he said, now is the right time. And so Prajnapati, his stepmother and his wife, also um, Gopa, his wife also became monastics. Eventually uh, his son became a monastic and uh, almost the entire family uh, became part of this Dharma heritage. I just love it that, uh, and some people say, well, why did he make the mass three times? It was polite and it was observing the custom of the country. And he also was very clever. He knew if he said yes right away, half of the men would leave <laughs> because they, they were not used to this. And so he knew that by giving them a little time to get used to the idea that it would work. And so that, that was my teacher's explanation. Because <laughs> I asked him, why did they make him ask, why did they, why did they make her ask three times? He said, well, you know, it's polite. He had to go by the, by the uh, customs of the country. Now, what I'd like to, uh, to do next is 
talk about some of these women. Let's talk about some of them. What were their lives like? Who were they? The Buddhas, the first Buddhist women, who were they? And uh, I have here a short, uh, a short paper that was written uh, about the uh, Therigata. Uh, everybody knows the Dhammapada, the Dharma path, which was the first collection of the Buddha's sayings, first written collection of the Buddha's sayings, but very few people know about the Therigata, the poems of the first Buddhist women. And so I'm just going to read a tiny bit from this and then read you some of their teachings so that you can get the blessing of their awakened thoughts and, uh, and understanding. The uh, Theragata is an anthology of poems about and by and about the first Buddhist women. The women were theris, or senior ones, among ordained Buddhist women, and they bore that descriptor because of their religious achievements. The Theris and the Therigata are enlightened women, and most of the poems, or gatha, and the, and the anthology are songs of their understanding and their enlightened experience. Dhammapala, the sixth century Buddhist commentator on the Therigata and a venerable Buddhist speech genre, said that these poems inspired, were inspired, and by doing so, uh, he associated the Therigata with the venerable Buddhist speech genre. So in other words, this scholar took these poems, saw their authenticity and their deep felt experience and said, no, these are gatha, these belong with the teachings of the holy ones. And so he said uh, this uh, was one or more verses consisting of knowledge uh, about the uh, experience of enlightenment. And so, as, uh, as the commentator says, as salt seems to always go with food, so the adjective first and the therigata seem to go together, and it is easy to see why. It talks about their lives. These poems talk about their lives. They, uh, let's see, um, there's one part here that I thought was really interesting. They're about, oh yeah, the poems are about freedom. About freedom. Because in those days, um, women often lived lives of utter servitude because they were women. They were born into servitude to their families, and then they were married off at a certain age, and then they were in servitude to their husbands' families. They never really had a free moment in their life. They were never free. They were always servants. And, um, and so when we read the poems of the Therigata, we can experience the surprising pleasure from the clarity and truth of the poems, and we can uh, see the epiphany of these women because they're about freedom. They're about the joy of being free, and they hold out the promise of being the occasion to make us free too, even if just for a few moments. And so um, I thought it would be interesting uh, to 
talk a little bit about these poems and then read a couple of them to you. I was uh, studying this book with uh, another, another woman. We had a, a lot of fun. We, we had a lot of fun studying these poems because she liked the attitude that the women showed in their poetry of freedom. And, and here, it, here is uh, the, one of the first one. She who has given rise to the wish for freedom and is set on it shall be clear in mind. One whose heart is not caught in the pleasures of the senses, one who is bound going upstream will be freed. So the idea um, that is that the inspiration to want to be free from the sufferings of samsara motivates all people who want to attain enlightenment, the, the wish to go beyond the sufferings of this world. And the Buddha, in his teachings, as you can see from the one that I quoted at the beginning, said that when we cling to things, people, situations, ideas, or if we plunge into mere satisfaction of the sense pleasures, we lose the opportunity to go deeper into ourselves and to become something more than what our thoughts and stories tell us that we are. I want to say that again. When we form the wish to be enlightened, we want to go beyond what our thoughts and stories that we tell ourselves tell us about who we think we are. We have stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. We're this, we're that, we're good, we're bad, we're confused, we're wise. We tell ourselves stories all the time, but we can choose the story and we can change the story. And the women who write these poems are women who decided that in a world where they had no freedom, they could become free by setting their own path and by taking their own life story and changing it. So they left home, these women, they left home, they got a, a begging bowl and a, a walking stick, a begging bowl for their food and a walking stick, and they went from door to door, just like the male monks did, asking for alms for their noon meal because the habit of the Buddhist monastic was to go from home to home seeking alms so that they could eat their one meal that they were allowed per day and spend the rest of the time in meditation. It was a, it was a very austere life that they lived as monastics. Modern monastics have it easy by contrast. They only spend one month a year living on alms and one meal a day. The rest of the time, they have more conventional ways of being. But they still live in community, and they still live on the donations of those who support them. So here's, here's one particular poem about a woman who made the decision to do this. Now you can imagine, if you were one of these traditional fathers or mothers, and your daughter came to you saying, hi, I'd like to shave off all my hair, leave, leave your service, 
and uh, leave my husband, leave my child, and I think I'm going to go walking and following the Buddha, wearing a robe and carrying a begging bowl and a staff. The parents didn't go for it. No, it didn't go for it. And um, the uh, attention given to the realities in these women's poems always include the endless varieties of social suffering endured by women, but also those endured by the poor. As the nun Chanda says, in which she decides that to ordain as a Buddhist nun, she does it out not of any spiritual aspiration, but as a way of getting food. So here's, here's when, once she achieved awakening, she looked back on her motivation for leaving home and she said, maybe it wasn't the best of motivations. Here's her story. In the past, I was poor, a widow without children, without friends or relatives. I did not get food or clothing. Taking up a bowl and a stick I went begging from family to family. I wandered for seven years, tormented by cold and heat. Then I saw a nun as she was receiving food and drink. Approaching her, I said, make me go forth in homelessness, meaning she was saying, may I become ordained as a, as a Buddhist monastic because that's what they called it in those days, going forth from the environment of home into homelessness, meaning that they would become free from the, the, the uh, social strictures of the home. And she was sympathetic to me. And her name, this woman, Pachara, made me go forth. She gave me advice and pointed me toward the highest goal of Buddhahood. I listened to her words and I put into action her advice. That excellent woman's advice was not empty. I know the three things that most don't know. Nothing fouls by heart. In other words, the, uh, she came to know uh, the, the state of enlightenment. She came to know her past lives. She came to know uh, all that holds a person back, meaning all of their obstacles and obscurations. She came to, by knowing herself completely, she then was able to know the hearts, minds, and aspirations of everyone, and then try to accomplish those in her practice. I'm going to tell you maybe one or two more stories and then we'll have a discussion. Does that sound good? All right. And um, let's see if I can find this particular one. Okay. I, this, is, um, this is the story of Mitakali. So here's Mitakali's poem. I went forth in confidence from home to homelessness. I wandered about looking for gain and recognition. I ignored the highest goal of Buddhahood, taking to any low goal instead, 
Ruled by my defiling compulsions, I never knew what a practitioner's goal was. Then, while I was seated in my meditation hut, I began to fear the inevitable. I knew I was on the wrong road under the rule of craving. Life is short. Old age and illness already crush me. There's no time to waste before this body is broken by old age. Looking at a person and seeing that a person is only made of impersonal parts, seeing those as they changed over time, waxing and waning, I stood up, my mind freed, the Buddhist teaching done. I love that poem because another person, here's another person who started practicing Buddhism for kind of all the wrong reasons. She wanted honor and recognition and she didn't get it because she was, she was um, co-opted by her own ambition. And then that one dark night when she was sitting in her meditation hut, she realized that she was on the wrong path. And in the moment that she realized it, she understood the meaning of the Buddhist teachings and she stood up a wise one. So it's like, we would all like to have instant enlightenment. It would be really swell. My teacher did tell me one time, he said, Buddhahood does happen in a moment. He said, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens as the result of months, days, months, weeks, and years of uh, practice of meditation and learning the Buddhist way. So um, I'll tell one more story. Uh, I, again, this was, let's see if I can find this one particular one. There's one that's quite long and I won't, I won't do this one, but it's really great because it's, it's a woman arguing with her parents. Uh, well, anyhow, hang on here a second. I best, not, I best not do this one, it's really, really long. It'll take like 10 or 15 minutes to go through, so we're not gonna do that one. But let's just say, she shows some attitude. She shows some attitude. Just, yeah, she, yeah. She, she shows some attitude. So um, we'll, have to, we'll have to let that one go. Oh, here's one. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta do this. When I was Sumedha, the daughter of King Konka and Mantavati and his chief queen, I was converted by those who live what the Buddha taught. Through them, I became virtuous, eloquent, learned, disciplined in the teaching of the Buddha. And I came to my parents and said, may you both listen carefully. So she tries to teach her parents. I delight in uh, nirvana. Everything about life is uncertain. Even if you live like a god, why would I delight in things not worth desiring? Things with so little pleasure and so much annoyance. Everything that the senses desire is bitter, but fools swoon over such poisonous things only to end up in hell for a long time where they suffer and they feel destroyed. Mother, most people cannot understand the truths taught by the Buddha. They take pleasure in everything about life and they long to be born among gods, but even birth among gods is uncertain. 
It is only birth in another place, just as impermanent. But somehow fools are not terrified of being born again and again. Then Sumedha said to her mother or father, I will not eat any more food as a householder if I do not receive permission to go forth. I will be in your house, but I might as well be dead. So she decided to make that decision. Her mother suffered and cried, and her father's face was covered with tears. They tried to reason with Sumedha, who had fallen to the palace floor. Get up, child. What are these tear tears for? You are already promised in marriage. You have been given to handsome king, Anidaka, who is in Varavati. You will be the wife of the king, his chief queen. And remember, child, keeping moral precepts, living the holy life, going forth. All of that is hard to do. And she, Sumedha answered them, it's not at all like that. Existence like that is worthless. I will either go forth or I will die, and I won't get married. It goes back and forth and back and forth for pages and pages. She wears them down and wears them down by telling them the truth about life. Oh yeah, I'm going to marry a king, but how many queens will he have? How many children will he have? You know, and, and what will become of me? No. <laughs> and then she said, and after, after all of that, when I die, I'll be no wiser. I'll be no wiser. And I, won't, I will still not be in control of my own fate. And so she chose homelessness. And it, like I say, it took pages and pages and uh, they finally relented and let her go. But this is how it worked. This is how it was. And uh, I'm so happy that I had this opportunity to share some of these poems by awakened women with you today because they're amazing. They're, they're really amazing. I'm going to just... Um, tell one more, because I think there's one more poem. Okay. This is um, the poem, the Enlightenment poem of Padachara, and we'll stop with this one. Furrowing fields with plows, sowing seeds in the ground, taking care of other wives and children, young, there are many wives and children, young men find wealth. So why have I not experienced freedom when I am virtuous and I do what our teacher, the Buddha, taught, when I am not lazy and I am calm? Now that I am a nun, while washing my feet, I made the water useful in another way by concentrating on it, watching it move from higher ground to lower ground. Then... I held back my mind, as one would do with a thoroughbred horse, and I took a lamp, and I went into my meditation hut. First I looked at the bed, then I sat on the seat. I used a needle to pull out the lamp's wick, 
Just as the lamp went out, my mind was free. So the idea is that she talks about the way that people get happiness by having wealth and, and, and things. And she said, well, now that I'm a person who's left home, why have I not gained freedom? But tonight, when I did a simple action after having meditated probably for hours by that stream watching the water, she was able to understand the nature of all things in that simple gesture of pulling the wick higher in the lamp. And when it went out, her mind was free. I, I love these kinds of stories. Well, that's a, a lot of reading, sorry. But I thought it would be fun to talk about their stories. And I can always tell you more later because I have, I have another little book that I've compiled just like this of their stories, which, which supply narratives as well as the poems for how they, how they succeeded in escaping. So questions you can ask about women in Buddhism, you can ask about the Theragadas, you can ask about the Buddha, you can ask about anything. I just don't know the winning lottery numbers. So we have two question microphones for your, uh, for your uh, opportunity to ask. And so if anybody has questions, curiosities, or inspirations, you can use the microphone. Or we can just meditate. What do we got? Questions, comments? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you. And I guess I wonder, I still don't see many women in Buddhism, and I wonder, do you get discouraged with that? You know, I'm really glad you asked this question because um, from the very beginning, I, I asked my teacher, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, about this. I said, you know, I've read about how, you know, before there was the internet, there was the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. Does anybody remember the Reader's Guide to Periodical? Okay, you're as old as me, okay. Um, it, it was what we had before the internet. We would go to the library and we would read these incredibly thick books that showed you every magazine article about the topic you wanted to read about, and sometimes it even showed you where to find them. And they were on microfilm, you set a little machine. It was very interesting. It was before the internet when you had to do everything by hand. So I'd done some reading before I met Rinpoche in 1977. Uh, and I said to him, I read about how women are not treated well in Buddhist monasteries around the world. What do you have to say about that? Nice question to start with. I was a reporter for a newspaper after all, and that was kind of like I was into that. And you know what he said? He said, look, he said, the Buddha's teachings say that men and women have equal capacity for enlightenment, and they have equal capacity to practice dharma. He said, anything you see that doesn't reflect that, that's culture, not religion. And that really, that meant a lot to me. But the fact of the matter is the culture is still winning. And there are not a lot of opportunities for many kinds of us. We can't all practice. We can't all teach. We can't all go to seminary. We can't, we can't all do these things. We need to be able to, everybody needs to be able to do it. We have to find a way. And uh, I often say when people ask me about this, why aren't there more women teachers? And I, I think there's many, many 
many reasons for this. And I think it really does come down to fewer people having opportunities to actually do the long retreat, which is how teachers are trained in our tradition. But, uh, but I've made a practice here of, of, I created something called the meditation instructors. And there are men and women, and you don't have to pay money, but you do have to be chosen for it. It is an invitation only. But I, the reason I have to do that is because all of the people who teach here are on my liability insurance policy. <laughs> so so uh, I have to have the, it's just a very technical reason, but it's a, it's a reason that I have to respect. And so uh, I tell people, if you would like to someday get an invitation to be a teacher, uh, learn your Dharma very well, be a good student, and then slowly you'll become a good teacher. But anyway, back to your question. I think it's because there are not that many opportunities for them to do the long retreat, which is how we train people here. But they have, a, they have great opportunity in the meditation instructor corps here. Um, and in other Buddhist organizations that, that have and use lay teachers who do not have the three-year retreat experience, they use them as teachers. They don't call them lamas. They're often called acharya or you know, like a master. And so I think that this is something that will take time. But the, uh, the other part of it is that to be seen as a person of quality, you really have to go and meditate and really be serious about your practice. And not all of us have enough time to do that. We don't have the time to go into long retreat and to learn things and to practice. And then after that, we become teachers, and then we get so busy we can't do retreat ever again. You know, we can't take time off. You know, like me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like take seven days off in October. Shh, don't tell my boss, because I want to do a retreat. So you know, so that's I think that's part of it. And we're just I'm I am not discouraged, not in the least, because I see so much, so many strides being made in such a short period of time here in the United States. So you just have to keep finding ways to engage everybody and give them as much teaching and training and the heart to help other people as possible. I know that's not a fully satisfactory answer, but I think that we're working, we're working on it. And I'm not discouraged about that because look at how long, for us, how long it took for us to get here and how many women presidents of the United States we've had so far. So, you know, I think, you know, I think we've got, you know, you know what I'm saying. It's like, we've got a little ways to go. And so we have to just keep working on finding ways to make society aware of the gifts that we have to offer. And then to do our best to be, to be those exemplars if we can. We're all flawed. I'm flawed. Everybody is. But we have to find ways to, to reach out and help others. So that's, that's my answer today. You ask me tomorrow, I may have a different one. Yes, hi. Yeah, you get to, yeah, this is really a fun thing. Yeah, don't you love it? That, I love it that we have instructions on the question mic now. So oh, yeah. people aren't quite as frustrated by the question mic as they used to be. So it's really nice. Thank yes. you, Lama Kathy, first yeah. of all. Um, so my question is, at the beginning of the talk, you said something about, um, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you said something about, um, leaving, making the decision to leave difficult situations. 
Um, I think I heard that, but could you re could you come closer oh, to the microphone and repeat? I said at the beginning of the talk. Yeah, I heard that first. Um, you said something about making the decision to leave difficult situations, okay, like right, choosing okay. to leave them. Yes. And a while ago, I heard you also tell a story about a monk that was taking a really long journey and decided to take with him the uh, most annoying student he had as, oh, like, yeah. his, his, as his teacher. And so I'm, I guess I'm just asking about your thoughts on when you soften into difficult situations and when you actively avoid them. Got it. I completely understand that question. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's very clear. Yeah, I'm a little hard of hearing, and this and this ear is is the one that's not really very good. So yeah, I completely understand that. The questioner is asking about how you how you make the decision, which situations to to take a softer approach and when to not take a softer approach. I'm just gonna. I mean, I'm just briefing it down, because. I think that, that when we, what I was trying to, what I was getting at was that when a person is a meditator, when a person's not a meditator, their thought is, their thoughts are like chatter, chatter, chatter continuously. Some people say they have a, a, a monkey mind, you know, it's just a chatter, 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 and there's, and it's very noisy and it's very confusing. But when you meditate, you can begin to when you let those thoughts go and return to the breath and let those thoughts go and return to the breath over and over again, you begin to get spaces in between the thoughts and which is really fabulous. And then you can, that's where you get the decision. That's where you can make the decision to like step back, take one step back and look at what you've decided and what you are doing and then make a change. I think that was what I was getting at. And you're asking, what decision to make. I'm, and I was just describing how you get to the place where you can take that step back and make that decision. When we get the opportunity to step back and make that decision, we're not instantly gonna know what to do. And um, I think that there are some situations where no matter what you do, the person is not gonna see or hear you or understand you. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Is that what you're getting at? Like when to push on a situation and when to hang back? Or when to be in a situation or leave a situation? Yeah. Kempo Karthar Rinpoche gave a talk about this once and he said, we wanna help people. We always wanna help people. But sometimes he said, we, we can't help somebody. We try, but we just can't. And we're not gonna be the one to get through to that person. And he said, when the person trusts you and knows you, then you can say even difficult things to them and they'll, they'll believe you and they'll listen. He said, but he said, if they don't really trust you or they don't really know you, they, they may not make a change in themselves based on what you're doing. And so he said, if you begin to really resent the person you're trying to help, that means that you've gone too far and you actually need to back up and not help them as much. Does that make sense? Does that give an answer to the question? Or is, I'm, I feel like I'm missing part of your question. Oh, letting a difficult situation be your teacher, right. Okay. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, resentment, 
I think that's really the main thing. It, it really comes down to that. Because I remember what you were saying about how to know when it, to let a, a difficult situation be your teacher. But it's all about our ability, isn't it? It's about our skill level. And if we have the skill to be impactful or to be effective, great. But if we don't have the skill to be effective, you've got to back up. Because that situation is not going to, you know, you're not going to be, if you can't, if you can't see what is happening to you as something you need to learn, and it's really causing you suffering, and you feel like someone's really being abusive toward you, that's not what that's about. That's, a, that's, a, that's too much. One of my teachers said, he said, one time a person said to me, oh, I have a friend who's in an abusive situation, but they feel that to be compassionate, they have to stay in the, they have to stay in the relationship. And the, and the teacher said, you know, just because you're compassionate doesn't mean you have to be wrong-headed. You know, he said, he said, it's never right. He said, it's never wrong. I'm sorry. He said, it's never wrong to tell someone to stop hurting you. And so I think that we have to make decisions based on our skill level. We have to be realistic. We have to be realistic about our, our, our ability to see something as our teacher. Because if we can't, because I mean, the teacher who told me that, he said, yeah, it's great if you can see everything as the purification of negative karma, every suffering you undergo as a purification of your negative karma from previous lives. And, and you know, he said, but that's almost impossible. For us, the suffering gets to, to be too great, and we can't see it that way. He said, of course, that's ideal, but it's, in many cases, it's impossible. So you just cultivate compassion for the people, but then you have to change. You have to leave. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's kind of, yeah, because we have to be honest about who we are and what we're, where we are in our practice and our capacity. I've had to walk out of many situations because I just did not have the skill. I couldn't get through that person. And they were making me more and more angry. Because see, if we get angry and resentful, then we're actually doing ourselves and that person a disservice. You know, that's what he means by wrong-headed. You know, so I, I hope that's helpful, uh, yeah. And if I didn't fully answer your question, you can see me after and then I'll see. But yeah, you can't, you can't like say, oh, I'm a Buddha right now, and I'm going to see everything as my teacher. If you can do it, fabulous, but it's not going to be 100%. And how you know when to leave? You leave when you become resentful and angry toward the person, because that means you've, you've exceeded your current limitation. We all have a certain amount of naturally occurring compassion, but there are situations we can't, we haven't experienced yet and, and can't get through and can't work through. So we have to be real about that. Hope that's helpful. Well, we have to stop here for today. But I really, really appreciate the questions and I'm so glad you came today. We have a dedication that we do. Uh, we're gonna start, we're gonna turn to page 30 in the red books. And we'll um, uh, simply uh, recite I think there's just uh, one prayer on page 30. Yes, this is, yes, it's the, just, the, oh, I'm sorry, it's not the prayers on page 30, it's the prayers on page 31. We'll gather together all the goodness that we've accomplished in this, uh, in this session 
and we dedicate it to all beings who are suffering. May they be free from suffering, come to Buddhahood. And coming to Buddhahood, may they emanate in all directions and benefit beings endlessly. We'll uh, recite in English. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing, from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas that I may follow in this I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thanks everyone, and thanks to the folks who are watching at home. Thank you very much. Have a good week, and we will see you next Sunday. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk. <laughs>